Let's open our Bibles now, please, to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel according to John uh, chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. You can find it in uh, the bulletin or your, it's in an app or in your Bible if you brought one. We'll read the first 17 verses of John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what, now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, probably like this, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. (sighs) Jesus answered, a person who has had a a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing his feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's Word. So, it had been three years now for the disciples uh, that they had been with Jesus. They had uh, lived with Him, they had eaten with Him, they had traveled all over the place with Him, they had watched Him uh, preach and teach to multitudes, like thousands of people at a crack, They had seen him do the most incredible, miraculous things, and they had heard that all of this was because the kingdom was coming. Jesus kept saying that the kingdom was coming, and and what they understood that to mean was, was that Jesus was going to usher in the kingdom of God. He was going to get rid of the Roman oppressors who had been ruling over Palestine and Israel for so long, and he was going to bring in a new era of peace and prosperity for the Jewish people. And... You know, when, when someone's talking like that and you don't see a ton of action in that direction, you might start to think, well, I don't know if this is really going to happen. But now they were becoming increasingly convinced this is really going to happen. They were starting to believe it. On Palm Sunday, which is the day that, that we are commemorating today, many, many centuries ago, Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which is the biggest 
most prominent, most important Jewish feast day of the year, and hundreds of thousands of people would stream into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this, and Jesus went up to do this as well. And he did it in a very interesting way. He, he had a, a donkey brought out to him uh, so that he could sit on this donkey and ride up into the city of Jerusalem on this donkey. And when he did that, the people welcomed him like a king. They were saying, Hosanna in the name, uh, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They were throwing their palm branches down in front of him. They were bowing down because they saw him as a king. And the disciples thought, wow. It's happening. It's finally happening. We're going to overthrow the oppressors. He's going to reign on the throne. Like, what a rush. Three years of hard work have finally paid off. And so they start making plans, right? This is what you do. You start making plans about what's going to happen in the new administration. In fact, uh, at this Last Supper, according to Luke, who wrote an account of this as well, they got into an argument about these plans because they were sort of talking about who was going to get the plum posts in the new administration, right? Like, I'm, I, want to be, uh, I want to be a cabinet minister and I want to be the minister of finance, nice powerful position. You don't deserve to be minister of finance. You can be, you know, minister of uh, tourism or something like that, you know, like a low post job. So they're arguing over all of this stuff. And the irony is, is that as they're arguing about this stuff, they are basically demonstrating that they have imbibed, you know what imbibe means, like drunk, they have drunk up the world's view of power and greatness, that it comes through getting positions of power, holding on to positions of power, and using those uh, positions of power uh, to get the things done that you want. And Jesus is like, kind of pulling his hair out because he's about to die. He's been telling them, look, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, handed over to the chief priests and scribes who are going to give me to the Roman governors and then I'm going to die on the cross. He's been telling them that he is about to die. He's been telling them that in his kingdom, in his administration, you don't win by winning, you win by losing. I know it sounds weird. Uh, They thought it sounded weird too. That's why it was so hard for them to get. He had been teaching them that greatness comes through humility, that glory comes through sacrifice. That's his kingdom, okay? And they're fighting over who gets the corner office. So, he needs to set them straight again. He needs to teach them a lesson again, as he has had to do time and time and time again. And so, Jesus, in this story, what he does is he teaches them through what you could call a living parable. You know what a parable is, right? These are are the teachings of Jesus. Uh, He would tell these stories about fictitious characters and stuff, and there was all kinds of symbolism and that kind of thing. And uh, they had a point at the end, obviously. Well, Jesus actually decides to act out a parable here. This is a living parable. And he's got a lesson to teach them as well. But the difference is, I think, this morning is we're going to see that parables, typically they would have like one one lesson to them, one kind of meaning to them. This one, you can see three. Scholars have pointed out that there's sort of three lessons that Jesus uh, teaches his disciples, and each lesson is deeper than the one that comes before it. So it's like digging down into the the bedrock of what this story is about. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to uh, unpack together the lessons of this story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. We're going to see that it's a parable of Jesus' love. We're going to see it's a parable of Jesus' journey. We're going to see that it's a parable of Jesus' mission. 
So, here we go. First level, the surface level. This story is a parable of Jesus' love. And that's the most explicit and most obvious lesson to this story. If you look at verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So, this is the purpose of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He's going to show them the full extent of his love. And the way he does it is by washing their feet. And you and I, as modern Western people, we go, what's up with that? Well, it helps, of course, to know the significance of this whole foot washing thing. Back then, you didn't have closed-toed shoes, right? You had open-toed sandals, and it was an arid country. And, and when you uh, walked around, you walked around in those sandals, and... Um, it was also a place that didn't have the kind of sanitation that we had, so that when you went through the villages and stuff, you were walking through sometimes pretty nasty material, right? I think you kind of get my drift. Uh, and so feet would get this stench and this dirt and this grime and feces and stuff all caked on them, and so when you entered into a house to have a meal, you would want to wash your feet first. But it was a terrible, terrible job to wash your feet because, you know, it was super gross. And so this stinky, gross job was only done by slaves. And it was so gross and so terrible, Jews could not make other Jews do it. So even if you were a Jewish slave working for a Jew, your master couldn't force you to do it. They could ask you to do it, and you had the right to say no, because it was such a demeaning, degrading thing. And on top of that, it was also kind of an insulting thing. Some of you remember, remember when George Bush Jr. was... Um, uh, what was he? President of the United States. You remember that? He was president of the United States. He went to Iraq and he was making a speech there and a guy threw a shoe at him. Do you remember that? Okay. Well, that was an ancient, very old insult. It was called the custom of the shoe. I know, the custom of the shoe. So what would happen, what, what these traditional cultures, what they understood was, was that there was nothing lower than the bottom of a shoe. So if you wanted to insult somebody and say that you are lower than the scum of the earth, you would hit them with your shoe, all right? So there you go. Don't ever do that to anybody, okay? But that's what you would do. And so there was this symbolic significance uh, of degradation that came from washing feet as well. And of course, the disciples, they don't want to do this for each other because that's gross and they're all kind of stuck up and it's not a nice job. I mean, have you ever, uh, if, you have, if you have sporty people in your house, right, you know when they come home from a sporting event and you got to have supper real quick or something, you say, okay, everybody, let's have supper, and they take off their shoes and they sit under the table, and for the first couple of minutes, everything's fine, and then eventually you're kind of like, whoa, like, you reek, man. Like, smelly feet are gross, right? I don't have to, I hope I don't have to, like, prove that to you. It's, it's gross. Um, and then Jesus, and so you say to everybody, get up, everybody go like wash your feet or put your shoes on or your socks on, new socks or something, cover it up. Jesus gets up to deal with this problem by washing his disciples' feet. They, he's going to do something that they're not willing to do. And when he's done, 
This is what he says. This is verses 13 and 14. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Here's the point. He says, look, you guys are sitting around arguing about prestige and about what's really important and, 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 and who's going to be the most important guy in the new kingdom. All of that is meaningless. All of that is pointless. If you want to follow me, if you really want to be part of my kingdom and my disciple, then you've got to do this for each other, meaning not just wash each other's feet. What he's saying is you should be willing to humble yourself to do whatever needs to be done for one another. I don't, know, I, I don't know what is a modern-day example of this, but could you imagine watching NBA basketball and it's the finals and it's Cleveland and Golden State again, and uh, LeBron James, you see him coming out of the dressing room uh, and he's just filled up the water bottles. Uh, needs to be done. We need water bottles on the bench. And LeBron got it done. That's... That's the kind of thing Jesus is saying. There's nothing that should be below you, too small for you, etc., okay? Now, I, we could stop here and we could apply for another half hour, just boom, 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 like just lay into you about all the ways you're not doing that, but I'm not going to do that. You can just take that one home and feel guilty about it if you want. We got to move on to the next level because this isn't just a parable of Jesus' love. This is a parable of Jesus' journey, and this... This is a short one, but I think a very important one. In verses 3 and 4, it says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, okay, he knows his majesty, his glory. He knows who he is. I'm the son of God. I'm the king of the universe. I make Bill Gates and Warren Buffett look like paupers, Okay? I am the king of glory. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. What's going on here? In this act of Jesus getting up from the table and, and, and serving his brothers around that table, Jesus is actually dramatizing his life. Okay? It parallels what he has come to do. Probably the greatest commentary on the, Jesus' journey coming into this world is in a place called Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 2, there's what's called a hymn to Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul wrote. And listen to what he says. He says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, here's, here's what scholars will tell you. They'll say, look... Philippians 2 and, and John 13 are sort of like parallel events or parallel uh, experiences. So Jesus, he gets up from the supper in John chapter 13. Philippians 2 says that he got up from his heavenly throne. 
In John 13, he strips down to this loincloth, and in Philippians 2, he lays aside his glory. Or he, he strips down and he lays aside his glory. Then he wears a loincloth, and Philippians 2 says he, he becomes a servant. And then in John 13, he washes his disciples' feet. And in Philippians 2, Jesus goes to death on this cross. And then it says that he, having washed his disciples' feet, he returned to his place. And Philippians 2 says that after Jesus died on the cross, God raised him from the dead, and he rose to heaven to sit at his Father's right hand. What we're saying here is, is that this episode of Jesus washing his disciples' feet is actually a picture of Jesus' journey about what he did. Now, what, so what? Why am I telling you this? I defy you to take a comparative religions class at McMaster University where you will learn all about Buddhism, you will learn all about Hinduism, you will learn all about a whole host of religions, Islam, etc., and I defy you, as you take that comparative religions class, to find a parallel in any other religion. See, the vast majority of the world's religions will say, if they believe in a personal God like the Western religions, Judaism, Islam, uh, Christianity, the vast majority of those religions will say that it is utterly unthinkable that God would actually stoop so low as to do this. It's degrading that God would, would humble himself to that degree. That's horrible. That's terrible. And, the, and Christianity actually is a religion based upon that very thing because, as we understand it, when you're inside the kingdom of God, you see that, that the greatness of a being is not demonstrated in them flexing their muscles and showing their might. The greatness of a being is in their ability and their willingness to stoop down to, to, to the small, to the vulnerable, to the, to the, you know, the only example I can give you, well, I can give you a bunch, but here's one that pops into my head right now. Remember when Pope Francis became Pope? And everybody's like, man, this guy is like, he's so different from all the other popes. And he's so awesome. <laughs> Why did they say he was so awesome? It was constantly photo after photo after photo of Pope Francis walking off his motorcade. You know, he's in one of these motorcades and he's in this glass car so that he can't get hit by a bullet and stuff like that. He gets out and he rushes over and he sees some little boy or girl who's disabled, or who has cerebral palsy, or who, who is crippled, or something like that, and he would scoop them up in his arms, and he would put his hand on them, and he would kiss them, and he would bless them. He would show his humanity. And people were like, that's great now, that's greatness. Why did people love Princess Diana? Because she was the first royal who walked out of the line, and she walked up to kids, and she grabbed them, and she hugged them. She was the first royal who walked up to AIDS patients, and hugged them, and kissed them, and caressed them, and wasn't terrified of them. And we said, that's greatness, because deep in our soul, we know that's greatness. We know that's real greatness. And Jesus is the picture, because no one has sat so high and yet comes so low. But that's not the deepest message of this parable. There's one more. It's a parable of Christ's unique mission. See, this foot washing thing, it shows that Jesus, 
it shows that Jesus is more than just a servant. It shows that he's a savior. See, it's, it's easy to read this story and to think, servanthood, Jesus is telling us to care for others and to be kind to others and to do good to others and to serve others and be willing to serve others and all that kind of stuff. He's so high and came so low. I need to be willing to at least stoop a little bit. I understand that. That's true. And you know what? That is true. That is all true. But, but, if that's all it is, if that's all this story is about, then what on earth do you make of verses 6 through 8? Verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Good old Peter. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And I would love to spend some time just cracking jokes about this scene because it, it makes me laugh. I, this is why I like Peter so much, okay? Because he's so impulsive and foolish. <laughs> and he, he thinks he's saying the right thing, and then Jesus just like, wham, just, it's like whack-a-mole, hey? Like he pops up with something, and Jesus just whack him, whacks him. And, and it's beautiful, okay? It's actually beautiful. But it doesn't make sense if, if all this is is about servanthood. It doesn't make sense that, that this exchange would happen. If it's only about serving each other, why does Jesus say, unless you let me wash you, you have no part of me? It's because that's not all it's about. The point is, Jesus is saying to Peter, listen, Peter, you need me to wash you. You need me to wash you. It's not just that you need to be washed. You need me to wash you. You are dirty. You are filthy. And I alone am the one who can clean you, Peter. Now, this is what the Bible teaches, friends. You and I are dirty because of sin. We are impure all of us, the best of us. Not one of us is outside of that category. We are all defiled and impure and stinky and dirty and gross because of sin, and we cannot have fellowship with God that way. And it might sound weird to you right now, but it's actually not weird, because if you're a person who has spent any time in the presence of, of a really bad person, like like an evil person. So I, I, have a, I have a friend who's a crown attorney and deals with the worst of the worst, okay? Murder, rape, pedophilia, that kind of stuff. And he'll tell you, you spend time in the presence of someone like that. And when you leave, you feel defiled. You feel dirty. You feel gross. Talk to someone who's in therapy, and, and t or not in therapy, but d does therapy. What it's like to do therapy sometimes with someone who is confessing extremely heinous crimes to you as they're trying to work through those things. And they'll tell you, you go through the cringe moment. You go through the gross moment. You go through that time where you, it gives you the creeps and you feel defiled just by being in the presence of that. Well, here's a piece of good news for you. That's how God feels around you and me. 
Even the very best of us are like that. Isaiah 64 says, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. And there is a story in the Old Testament that pictures this in the most profound way. It's in Zechariah chapter 3. I actually wrote it out or had it put on the front of the bulletin for you. So the prophet Zechariah was given a prophecy or was given a vision. And the vision that he was given was of the Old Testament high priest Joshua, who uh, on the day of, was on the Day of Atonement, was going to go into the temple. This was an ancient Israelite practice. They had this thing called the temple. The temple had three compartments to it. The most inner compartment, the third compartment was called the holiest place or the Holy of Holies. And in that compartment was the presence of God himself. And nobody was ever allowed to go into that place because if they did, they'd die. Why? Because they're a sinner. And God, purity would consume their impurity and they would be destroyed as a result of it. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would be allowed to go into that place to to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant on behalf of God's people so that they could be forgiven for their sins. But here's how the process worked, okay? So the week before that day, that moment, the the high priest would move out of his family's house. And we know this from Jewish history, so I'm not making this up. He would move out of the house of his family and he would get an apartment all on his own. And the reason was is he couldn't be made unclean by being in the presence of his family. And he would practice all week long to prepare himself for that day. And the night before it was supposed to happen, he wouldn't sleep But he would stay up all night and the other priests would stay up with him and he would pray and he would meditate on scripture in order to purify his soul. Then the next day, he would, behind a screen near the temple, he would wash three times. So just a silhouette of him could be seen by the people. He would wash, sorry, five times. He would take five baths so that the people could see that he was clean. And then he would dress in white linen from head to toe. And then he would make a sacrifice on behalf of himself. And then he would remove his clothes. He would bathe again. He would put on another set of white linen. And then he would sacrifice on behalf of the other priests. And then he would remove his clothes, bathe, put another set of white linen on. Then he would sacrifice on behalf of the people. And then he would remove his clothes, bathe, and put on another set of white linen. Then he would take two goats. One was called a scapegoat. And he would place his hands on that scapegoat. And the second goat would be killed and he would take the blood of that into the holy place to sprinkle on the, uh, the altar, or sorry, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, okay? So that's everything that has happened to prepare for this moment. Now, what Zechariah sees is he sees Joshua entering into that most holy place to sacrifice on God's people. He has been purified. He spent a week preparing for this moment to purify himself. He walks in there, and what does it say in verse 3? Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And that word filthy in the original language is not filthy. It's basically crap. He's covered in excrement. He is completely soiled. He is disgusting. And Zechariah stands there shocked. He those TV shows where they they take the black light into a hotel room. Right? And the reason that Joshua is like this is because only God can cleanse Joshua. 
What does it say in verse 5? Then I said, that's God. This is, sorry, uh, verse 5 of the Zechariah passage. Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. God doesn't... See, here's the amazing thing. Joshua walks into God's presence and God doesn't strike him with a fireball and burn him up. God cleans him. Now fast forward to Jesus and Peter. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're filthy, you're dirty, but I can clean you. You can't be part of me. You can't have fellowship with God or with me unless I clean you. Friends, this is the hard edge of the gospel. You have to admit you're a moral failure. You have to. Even the best of us are. You have to admit that you're probably worse than you think. And I know that's so hard to admit. I know because we're all spending most of our lives trying white-knuckling it, trying to convince everybody around us that we're okay, that we got our act together, that we're not so bad. And now God comes to you and he says, that charade, you gotta lay it down. If you want the incredible blessing that I have for you, you've got to lay it down. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus doesn't just tell Peter, I have to do it. Jesus is willing to do it. He volunteered for the position. He voluntarily got down off his chair or whatever he was sitting on and he, he emptied himself and he went to, 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 he went to Peter to clean him. Now think about this, friends. Think about it. Imagine if you're there. Imagine yourself at the table and you look down at your feet and you take a whiff and you think, man, they reek. And this Jesus comes up to you in his underwear and he takes your foot in his hand. He's kneeling before you and he takes his foot in your hand. And what does that mean now? That means that that foot's pretty close to his face and now his nostrils are filled with the stench of your feet. And then he takes a bucket or he takes a cloth and it's wet or whatever and he begins to wash and clean your feet. What's happening? He's getting dirty. The dirt gets on him, you see. Did he cause the dirt? Did he make your feet dirty? No. But he willingly gets dirty in order to cleanse you. You see, somebody has to do it. If you're going to be clean, somebody has to do it. And Jesus says, I will do it. I will get dirty as a result. I will be sullied by your sin as a result. But here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus, yes, he pays the cost, but he does it willingly, you see. He takes the hit for you so that you can be made clean. That's why this is a picture of Jesus' ministry. Listen, sin and evil, it's complex, right? Like, like look at the world. The world's messed up. It's messed up, man. Who caused it? Who are you going to blame? Everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. But what's the point? It doesn't take it away. It doesn't solve it. It doesn't clear it. Who's going to bear the cost of it? And look at your own life. You're messed up. 
We're all messed up to varying degrees, but you're messed up. Why? Maybe it's because you've been terribly mistreated by someone. Maybe you were abused as a child and it's horrible and it's terrible. And it's because of someone else that you are so messed up. Who's going to pay for it though? You say, well, I shouldn't. They should. Yes, but maybe why are they messing you up? Maybe they're messing you up because they're so messed up. Maybe somebody abused them and all they know how to do is be an abuser. Who's going to pay for them? And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And we're pointing fingers at each other saying, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's not my fault. I want justice. And Jesus stands up and says, quiet, listen to me. I will put an end to this. I'm the only one who says it's not my fault and has every right to say it. I'm the only one who's not responsible for this. But I will pay to make you clean. I will get filthy. That's the extent of his love. You know, who knew that's what verse 2 was talking about, or verse 1 was talking about when it said, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Okay, last thing. And I'll try to make it quick. Look at verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, before the disciples, they wanted power. They wanted, they wanted positions of influence. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, here's what you got to do. You got to take the hit. You have to bear the cost. This is not just do good for others. This is pay the price in serving others. You got a friend who's messed up. You got a family member who is a disaster. They're anger, they're angry, they have terrible habits. Uh, they, they are not nice whenever you're with them. It's always drama, 24-7 drama all the time. You, you know they're coming to the family get-together and you're just like, oh, let's, can we get through three hours without a meltdown, please? And it ain't your fault. It's not your fault. But you say, I will take the hit. You stick with them, you see. You, you take the abuse. You take the late phone calls. You take them barging in on your family time. And you don't hit back. You don't repay the evil. But you pay. You pay. And hopefully, one day... They'll come out of the temporary insanity that they're in or whatever it is. You know, I, I heard a story once of a woman who had tremendous depression. And I don't know if it was postpartum depression or, or what the cause was. But she, she struggled deeply with depression for a season in her life, a pretty long season in, in her life. And she knew that she was bad, if I can put it this way. She was... Due to her depression, she was being a bad mom. She was being a bad wife. She was being a bad friend. 
She knew she deserved to be rebuked sometimes when she was harsh and cruel. And, and all the while, her husband took it. He stood by her. He didn't let her get away with things, but he stood by her and he loved her and he was there. And sometimes he bawled her out and then he went away and he went, ooh, that was the wrong move. And he went back and he said, I'm sorry I bawled you out. He didn't say, I'm sorry that you push my button sometimes. He didn't give one of these half-hearted, half-baked for, uh, repentance you know, confessions. He said, I'm sorry. And you know what? She came out of her depression. Now, I'm not telling you that if you do this, that's what will happen to you. But I am telling you, there is a power. There is a power in the gospel that you just, I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. I just, I just want you guys to know it so bad, so bad. Some of you guys are dealing with crap for so long, and there's a power right there that you can't imagine if you would let him wash you, and he will give you power to take the hit for others in a way you never thought you could ever do it. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Oh, he is so gentle and kind. I, I can't believe it. Um... Thank you, Jesus, for taking the hit for us. Thank you for washing us. Thank you for being all that you are for us. Help us to believe it and live out of it. In, in the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.